Hello, and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Sarah Hoffman, the Public Information Officer here at the ACFE, and today I'm joined by David Weber, the Academic Director of Fraud Management Programs at the Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. Thanks for joining us today, David. Thank you for having me. Diving right in, you have a very interesting relationship with one of the most infamous fraudsters in the world. You regularly correspond with Bernie Madoff. How did this correspondence begin? To begin at the beginning, until I finished my federal career, I was the Assistant Inspector General for Investigations for the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. So I was the Chief Investigator for the SEC, and I uh, directed the reporting of misconduct in the Madoff investigation. So this is a person that I have known. And uh, an extraordinary thing happened. I don't remember exactly when it was, but several years ago when I started teaching here at the University of Maryland, I received an email that was an automated email from the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And it was sent to my University of Maryland account. And it said, an inmate, Madoff, Bernard L., 612745 or whatever his inmate number was, would like to correspond with you. And it was quite an extraordinary email to get. And uh, the way the Bureau of Prisons works, inmates are not allowed to just randomly contact victims or contact witnesses in their case. So the Bureau of Prisons pretty severely restricts who they can speak to for good reason. And so in this case, he had added me to a safe senders list and then the Bureau of Prisons approved me. And the next step in that process was verifying that I actually wanted to speak with an inmate. And so this extraordinary email gave me three choices. It said, number one, if you don't know this person, click here. (laughs) It said, number two, if you don't ever want to hear from a federal inmate again, click here. And then number three, it said, if you are willing to accept communications from this inmate, click here. Please be advised, you know, we are not capable of controlling what is said in the messages. And it was an extraordinary moment for me to be a professor, to be teaching fraud at a school. And here's a guy that was really involved in a lot of things, bad things that happened. And that was a big part of things that happened to me. And and suddenly we were going to strike up this correspondence in a very different type of relationship than we had in the past. He plays a pretty regular role in your class, if I'm correct, answering questions posed by students and even down to uh, helping select the textbook that you use in your online MBA class, uh, Dr. Joe Wells' Principles of Fraud Examination. How how do your students react to having such a direct line to such an infamous character? A lot of people don't believe that it's actually true. And the first time they see an email, because I will take the emails and I will forward them to my students, it's an incredulous moment because the email header, uh, you know, he doesn't have his own email address. Again, it goes through this Bureau of Prison system. But, you know, the header says Madoff, Bernard L., <laughs> like <laughs> on the email. And so it's pretty amazing when you see these emails because he's very um, direct in the emails. He's not a man who minces words. He's not afraid to express his own remorse about his involvement, but he's also not afraid to express consternation or disappointment in the regulators who, of course, failed to catch him during this time. And so, yes, he does play a role. And what we typically do, since I'm the person who's on the quote-unquote safe senders list, is if the students have a question, they we will filter the questions through me. I will email him, and then he will respond. And 
depending on what his prison schedule is, he sometimes can respond very quickly. Uh, Sarah, I don't know if, you're, if your listeners know this or if you know this. Do you know what his prison job is, that every federal prisoner has a job? I want to say librarian, but I'm not sure. You're exactly right. He's not a librarian, but he works in the federal prison, the Butner, North Carolina Federal Corrections Camp Prison Library. And as a result, he is one of the few inmates that really does have regular access to email. A lot of other inmates, you see this on television and in pop culture and just in the real world, they have to buy stamps at the commissary and they have to mail their correspondence to people outside the prison. In his case, because he works in the library, he does have access to these computers. And again, these computers do not have internet access. They can't just go start contacting random people, but it does have this closed email system on it where other inmates would have to wait in line or take a turn or make an appointment in the library. And he, he's in the library, depending on the prison schedule, on a fairly day-to-day -day basis. So there have been times where I've emailed questions the students had where he's responded in less than an hour. So it's almost real time. A recent example of something the students were very interested in is in fraud class, we were studying the use of commodities as alternate currency. And in the past, there had been an article in the Wall Street Journal about how packets of mackerel and tuna were being used as prison currency because, uh, just as we all remember from kids, these tuna cans are stackable and circles. So each can in prison world equals the equivalent of a dollar. And they don't actually eat it. It's just being traded as currency. We know from studying money laundering on the outside that laundry detergent and baby formula are also being used as alternative currencies in inner cities because, again, they're very expensive. So they're not actually being eaten. They're just being traded. One of the things the students were asking about because a new podcast came out a couple months ago called uh, Supernova, and it's, uh, it's an Amazon podcast about Madoff is that there is an allegation that Madoff has cornered the hot cocoa market in Butner Federal Prison. And so the students were very curious about that. So that's an example. We were in our week talking about money laundering. We were talking about alternate currency. The kids see this article on hot cocoa being the prison currency and that Madoff has cornered the market. And so the question posed by the students is, number one, is it true? Have you really cornered the hot cocoa market? And number two, how does prison currency and power work? in the federal prison that you're at. And he engaged in a long-running discussion with the students on that. Well, was it true? Has he cornered the hot cocoa market? No, he is vehemently denying that he has cornered the market in hot cocoa. Putting aside his denial, I think theoretically the allegations are plausible because what we're talking about, again, from our childhood, picture a Swiss Miss foil package of cocoa. That's what we're talking about they would have the capacity to be traded and used as, as alternate currency in the same way that a can of mackerel would. Uh, but he is adamant that he has not, and he, in his emails, is of the view that reporters, including the person who did this Supernova Amazon series, uh, may have incentivized other inmates through commissary donations to have created salacious stories about him. So he is absolutely categorically denying that he has cornered the market in hot cocoa. But he does have a view on prison power and commodity money in prison. And so he did engage the students, despite his denial, in talking about what it's like to be in prison and how you get things done. So in prison, everything from your physical protection 
to cleaning up your cell to getting your laundry done that, that you can obtain services by, by using this barter system because they, they do have money, but it's not physical. It's not in a dollar form. They have a very limited amount of money in their prison commissary account, but it can't be used where you can cash out a dollar. It can only be used to buy something, but that item that you buy can then be traded for the value of a dollar, which is why they're using the cans of Mac. What's one of the most surprising insights that you've received from Madoff? Has anything taken you aback or completely shifted the way you were thinking about something? He really does express remorse, and he also continues to be of the view, and I agree with him, that the regulatory agencies uh, really failed to do their jobs and failed to catch him. And he, he believes that the regulatory agencies done their jobs, that he would have been caught a lot sooner. With this whole topic of talking to fraudsters and you talking with one of the biggest fraudsters at the ACFE, we regularly interview them and we have some of them speak at our conferences. I know that some fraud examiners are unhappy with this and they believe that we're giving an undue platform to criminals and that there's not really any value of hearing their story. What are your feelings on this kind of bigger issue of what, what can we learn from fraudsters? Can we learn anything from fraudsters? There's no question that we can learn from fraudsters. I'm just going to use Bernie. He was able to circumvent the internal controls, and he was able to fool five different sets of examiners. And at the, at the SEC, they call them OC examiners. So these are Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations inspectors. He was able to fool multiple big four public accounting firms who came in to visit as part of their auditing of feeder funds. And to a certain extent, he was able to fool some of his own family. And understanding that and being able to understand what happened is very important. As fraud fighters, we are frequently in a position where clearly being proactive is part of our role. But in many cases when there is spectacular fraud, we are not learning of the fraud until the incident has already occurred. We are part of the response team. We are conducting the investigation. And using an analogy, in many cases where we've had the most spectacular frauds of the last 20 years, these frauds in many ways are like car crashes. We are coming on the scene of a car crash after the fact. There are injured people. There are people who need to be triaged. There are cars that are damaged. There is debris in the road. And we as fraud fighters have to come in and figure out what happened. And many times it's hard through the victims to figure out exactly how a fraud transpired. And so having any person on the scene who is still able to speak continuing the car crash analogy is helpful even if they were a drunk driver, even if they were somebody who drove recklessly, hearing what they have to say is very important to reconstructing the scene. And so in the case of the SEC, one of the biggest roles that my office played, the, the SEC Office of Inspector General, is we were not only investigating him, but we of course had to investigate the systemic failures that took place at the commission, that the commission failed to do its job. And having somebody at the scene be able to walk us through that was very helpful. I have been at the fraud conference many times where I have heard some of these convicted felons speak. Uh, an example would be Aaron Bean, just from HealthSouth. He talks about the pressure that he was put under as a CFO to do the things that he did. And I agree that it can put them on a pedestal, but I also agree that certain of them have a genuine regret for what they did and a genuine regret for the harm that they caused. And anything that we can get from these people that help us reconstruct the scene 
and build a better mousetrap in the future, we, we should embrace the ability to speak to them. I've never imagined it as that kind of car crash analogy, but I think that's a very a very interesting and valid way to look at it. You have situations in popular culture, and again, I'm at the University of Maryland, so let's use a Maryland crime series, for example, The Wire. And everybody thinks of homicide detectives as people who have to piece through the evidence. But a lot of times, people don't realize that we as fraud professionals are very much doing the same thing, except instead of DNA or a blood sample, we're having to piece together, obviously, a financial whodunit. But many times, we're having to sift through the same wreckage. We're having to interview those same witnesses. We're having to figure out what went wrong. And it's very much the same as violent crime. And having a witness, I'm not saying they're a witness because they're obviously the perpetrator, but having somebody who was there, even if they're shading their version, can help us piece together what actually happened. With your experience in the SEC and teaching anti-fraud courses, what do you think that the likelihood is that another large-scale Madoff-style Ponzi scheme is either currently operating or we will find operating in the near future? Imminent. Imminent and absolute. It is already happening. Can I tell you where it is? No. Can I guarantee that it's happening? Without question. During the financial crisis, and, and again, just, just before I was at the SEC, I was the chief of enforcement unit one at the FDIC, and before I was at the FDIC, I was the special counsel for enforcement at the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which is the regulator of the national banking system. And so I've seen fraud my whole career, I mean, since I was a baby fraud fighter. and there's that famous quote from uh, Warren Buffett where he says that you only see who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. And so when the tide's in, all you see are bobbing little heads because they're swimming in the water. But as soon as the tide goes out, you can tell who's wearing shorts. And, you know, Madoff, just to use Madoff as an example, the issue wasn't that he got caught. The issue was that the requests for redemptions from his investors were outstripping new victims who were investing new money. And the reason that was happening is not because of him. The entire securities market froze up during the banking crisis, and people were fleeing to safety. People were trying to take their money and put it in cash positions. And of course, at a certain point, which was a catastrophic day, we had a situation where even in money markets where the buck was broken, where people were not even getting to keep a dollar that they had invested the day before. And it created panic. And so in his case, people were trying to redeem money, and he didn't have the new money coming in fast enough, and so the tide went out. And the reality is there are always going to be tides, and there will be flush times, and there will be times that are not flush. And the business world is cyclical. We know that the business world is cyclical. And there are always frauds going on. It's just that during lean times, they are more quickly revealed. Someday, and it will be someday soon, there will be another fraud. And it is just a matter of time until that fraud is revealed. Uh, in addition, I, I don't feel that the Securities and Exchange Commission has truly reformed itself. I think it has made significant strides in improving its, its inspection activity, but the SEC is still not doing uh, what needs to be done it is still not regularly inspecting every firm, certainly not on an annual basis. 
And there are still tremendous lessons to be learned from, from the banking crisis that have not been implemented at the financial regulators. And until these things happen, fraud is going to continue to rear its head. David, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so happy to. And if I can just give a shout out, can I give the URL for our new program so people can check it out? It is https colon forward slash forward slash tinyurl.com forward slash UMD risk. And this new program is uh, specifically, it is a graduate certificate program in risk compliance and the law. And it is a online graduate certificate program that is going to be offered by the University of Maryland. And we are enrolling our first class now. And the first class will start in fall of 2017, so this coming fall. And what makes this class so interesting, it is an online-only certificate. So you do not have to come to our flagship College Park campus. The entire course of study can be taken online, and it is a 12-credit, one-year program where you take one class at a time. And we are learning uh, the students. These are all people who already have bachelor's degrees. The perfect student that we envision would be a current practicing fraud examiner who is a journeyman and who wants to take his or her game to the next level. And uh, we are going to be learning about regulatory compliance. We are going to be learning about forensic accounting and doing a deeper dive into the accounting concepts. We are going to be learning about legal concepts in, involving both US law and international law. And finally, we are going to be having a large data portion of the program where we are going to be actually learning how to use large data and how the largest banks and insurance firms and broker dealers in the, in the world are using their data. And at the end of the day, it's going to allow you to come out as an expert in, in risk and, and compliance and land one of these enterprise risk jobs at one of these organizations. You can hear more from David at the 28th annual ACFE Fraud Conference in Nashville this June 18th through the 23rd. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Fraud Talk in the iTunes store and at acfe.com slash podcast. This has been Sarah Hoffman signing off.